All the chases. It's the tail end of the first act and the band of heroes are fleeing the compound. Pew! Whiz! go the projectiles and someone yells in cartoon terror. But look, the hand-operated cart is right there. Quick, flip the liver to shunt the tracks or we'll all be smushed by the crusher. Thank God. Quick thinking. Quip number 14. Flirt. Straighten clothing. Wink. Quip number 15. Transition. It's into the second act and the pace is lagging. A villainous figure appears in the shadows, tailing our guys in a purple impala. You think you can lose him? Step on it, Joe! The camera swirls and whirly gigs under the L-train tracks, like the French Connection, but not. He tugs his charcoal grey lapels and makes an anachronistic comment. The colour grade is somewhere in the blue-orange realm. There's a lovelorn character drama with a virile young beau who may be the big bad wolf. Chase me, chase me through the pussy willows, through the old man's beard, through the river. The men with guns are chasing too, and suddenly they're a team. They collapse, panting, tractor beaming each other's eyes. They don't yet know about the letter. 700 superheroes kapow and bounce and ping-pong around 700 urban space station jungle temple environment scenes. Representations of skyscrapers and transport pods and monoliths suffer significant damage. Your nephew pews and kapows along in his seat, his eyes glowing in the light from the enormous screen. No one was hurt in the making, it says, but they always say something like that. There's an art film, a disabled lead, trans issues explored, mellifluous subtext. The repressed actuary runs and runs through the cobbled streets, chasing the mysterious man-woman. He dreamed this chase in slow motion during the title sequence. When he catches the man-woman, something as yet ill-defined will be revealed, and it will shake this city to its core, and will initiate the floods, and the third act will involve gondolas and revelatory confessions. There are tugboats, hovercraft, rocket bikes, roller boots, over-shoulder come-on jibes, laser-gun flybys, jaw-snapping hounds that join mid-flight, conveyor belt disaster reversions, weightless CGI swashbuckling. In one, the hero wakes up mid-chase and doesn't know what's going on. Oh, I'm chasing that guy, he realises, as he sees a miscreant running. Nope, he thinks, as the miscreant turns his way and fires. He's chasing me. The narrative jumps back and shows us how he got here, and only then do we really understand. Hello, and welcome to Two Minute Stories, the third instalment of Two Minute Stories. I am Chris Nealon. And I'm Helen Moore, and I can't believe it's the third episode already. I know, flown by. It's gone really fast. <laughs> Who have we got on the show today, Helen? Today we've got fiction from Anna Chilvers. Uh, Anna is a PhD student and associate lecturer here at Manchester Metropolitan, and her novel Tainted Love was published by Blue Moose. And she's working on. Um, she's just finished a novel. She's working on a new novel. Her PhD is connected to walking as a form of creative practice and uh, a novel that explores those themes as well. So that's really exciting. And mm -hmm. um, she's going to read to us from Tainted Love. 
And then we have poetry and narrative in poetry with Mark Pajak, who's a graduate of the MA in Creative Writing here at Manchester Met 2. He's a previous winner of the very prestigious Bridport Prize for Poetry and his pamphlet Spitting Distance was published by the Poetry Business um, as a Laureate's Choice publication and he's working on his first collection at the moment. So... Yeah. Another exciting lineup. We've got a nice mix of, of prose and poetry again. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's emerging about this show is that we conceived it as as uh, a place for short stories, um, it, any kind of story in a two minute form. And then within that, in in our, th- <laughs> our three shows so far, we've had uh, a range of different stuff coming in. Really, haven't mm-hmm. we? We've had poems. We've had prose poetry. I think with Adele Stripe. Yeah. Um, we've had uh, we've had short prose pieces maybe some stuff i think my stuff kind of verges between prose and prose poetry perhaps yeah. um and then today we've got a novel extract but which also robbed from its novel context i think fits the the two minute story brief in a really interesting way it's interesting the, the way that the way that all those different forms can can come and work together and, and tell stories together i'm not always aware of differences between them as well even mm. when some of the work isn't conventionally narrative. I think that's one of the most interesting things about it, that we're getting those kind of... And we're getting thematic overlaps between work that's kind of written in quite different genres as well or written with different intentions. One of the things that uh, that is going to come up later in uh, uh, in one of our interviews is, is the idea of writing from an experience that isn't your own. Yeah, That's something which I think about a lot uh, because... I lived in Asia and I often try to write from Asian perspectives, mainly mm. Thai and, and Korean. And it's very, it's risky to do yeah. that. Uh, it can be insulting to do it. You have to tread very carefully. You have to research a lot. You have to really try and get the voice right, get the cultural kind of associations as, as, as right as you can get them as an outsider. And often as I'm writing something, sometimes when I get very far with, with something, I, I I have to think again and think, should I really be doing this? Because it's it's yeah. not really my experience. It's not something that I feel ownership of. I'm I'm definitely acting and I'm not sure I'm pulling it off. Mm-hmm. You know, do you ever feel like that? Mm. I don't know if I've ever felt it that strongly, but mm. um, maybe that's because I don't push myself enough to write beyond that experiential comfort zone or what I can extrapolate from that. I think maybe that's something I should do more, actually, mm. to get that feeling of being pushed in that way. Do you write as you a lot, do you think? Uh, yeah, or versions of me, certainly. Mm. Um, although I wouldn't always want the reader to assume that. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to have it both ways, really. I want to uh, not push myself to inhabit other people too much and and uh, and have to <laughs> write from an, a perspective that might seem uncomfortable. But also I don't want people to assume that I'm writing about myself. So that's a real cop out, isn't it? Authenticity is really important to writing, isn't it? I think a lot more than other art forms. Mm. And you, like, you, there's got to be a, a convincing level of authenticity in whatever it is you're writing, even if yeah. you're writing something set in ancient Rome or whatever, something very far from your experience. You've just got to make us believe in it, whatever it is. I think that's mm. the most important thing. It doesn't matter if it's surreal, if it's fantastical, if it's another perspective, um, if it's you know, if it's historical. You've just got to make us believe. Mm. We've got to feel like we're in safe hands, I think, as readers, as audiences. That's the key thing. In, uh, in one of the stories that we've got coming mm-hmm. up, the woods are very prominent. Yeah. Um, and this idea of journeying into the woods and into a a kind of 
what, a, a, a realm of vulnerability or, yeah. or the unexpected. And that's obviously, that's a key part of, of writing theory. You're meant to send your characters mm -hmm. off into these, these potentially dangerous or risky or unusual or unfamiliar worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, do you do that? Do you do that in your piece that you're going to read today? Um, <laughs> the piece I'm going to read today is sort of taking the reader into the woods, I think, as well, which is one of the themes of, of, of what Anna's talking about, um, especially in her research. And yeah, I think I like doing that. I think I think I like uh, inhabiting or creating spaces where you think unexpected things might happen or things that go beyond the everyday. And that's definitely a theme of all the pieces on today's show, I think, as well. The idea of, uh, yeah, expect the unexpected. Now, our guest Anna Chilvers is going to read from her novel, Tainted Love. Tainted Love. I dreamed of my first girlfriend, Laura, that night. We were walking together through the town, but everything had changed. It was like it is now, with all the green trees and the clean stone of the buildings. The sun was shining, and we came to the canal. Laura said, This is all wrong. Why are there geese on the water? It's different now, I said. The soot has gone. The mills have gone. It's a clean place. She grabbed hold of my arm. Look, she said, look at that tree. There was a mature ash growing not far from the water. It was in full leaf and its trunk was covered in a pattern of greens and greys, liverworts and lichens. The forest is creeping into the town, Laura said. It's taking over. Soon everything will be green. I turned around and saw that it was true. Moss was growing across the streets, spreading up walls and over cars. Ferns were growing in the mortar of buildings, from wheel arches and lampposts. Trees were bursting through where windows should have been. People were slowing down, coming to a stop as the moss grew up their legs and torsos and fixed them where they stood. Laura, beside me, was shaking with fear. It's okay, I said, it's beautiful. It can't touch us. A mountain stream was bubbling and leaping down the main road over mossy boulders. I turned to her and her hair had become green fronds. There was a bird inside her clothes and when I looked she was hollow. The bird was nesting in her ribcage. Her face was decaying before my eyes, her cheeks sinking in and blackening so her eyeballs protruded. Sorry, Richard, this is not my time, she said and her voice slows, deepened as though it were being played at the wrong speed. I grabbed at her, but there was no flesh, only clothes over bone. I've come back for you. We can be together. She shook her head. Her cheekbones were visible. Don't you remember, Richard? I left you. I married Jack and we had children, goats, chickens. I'm dead now. She vanished then, and when I looked around, there was no sign of the town. I was standing on a wooded slope next to a stream and a small group of deer were upwind of me, eyeing me nervously. I ran at them, shouting my frustration. So the piece that you read today is an extract from a novel. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the novel? The novel's called Tainted Love. Um, it's set 
in a town that's based on Hebden Bridge, so in sort of West Yorkshire in the Calder Valley. When I started writing it, I was looking at some Northern Soul songs and I was quite interested in the stories that you get in songs and I was going to do a collection of short stories that were each one based on a different song. Mm. Um, but as I started to write them, the characters started to cross over from one song to another and to merge and I ended up with something that wasn't a collection of short stories, it was a novel and that's ended up being Tainted Love and there is a playlist in, in the back of it. Um, but it's also, I mean, that's one thing it is, it's a collection of stories about um, that come from songs but also it's um, a story about the change of of, the, of West Yorkshire so it's it's looks there's a character the, some of the characters have been around for quite a long time they've been around for well some of them for hundreds of years but some of them for like 100 150 years or whatever and so they've lived from the industrial revolution right through to the present day so it's looking at the way the town has changed and the extract that i just read was i guess shows that a little bit that richard the the character is the point of view in that one has been alive since the industrial revolution and has seen the changes in the, in in the town and you use that that imagery of kind of there's, there's the melding of dream imagery with nature and sort of regret, perhaps. I got something about the kind of melancholia of, of memory, maybe the distance of that time creates. Uh, and it was interesting to me the way you have, the way you use nature to, to represent that. Why did you go in that direction? Well, I think, I mean, in, in the Hebden Bridge area, and I'm sure it's the same in other places, but that's where I live, so I know, know that area. Um, there's a lot of old mills that are now ruins and the, the, the nature has grown up all around them. Mm. So you've got like great tall chimneys with trees that have grown up and are now taller, uh, taller than the chimneys and you've got places where trees have burst through the roofs and, and you can see that happening around you and nature is taking back um, what, was, what was there. And there's all sorts of things that have changed. Like there's the species of moss and lichens and all sorts that haven't been seen there for 200 years that are now back there again. There's all sorts of stuff like that happened. So it's very, really, it is very interesting that that is actually happening. And then you can go and those places do have some sort of, sort of melancholy about them because when mm -hmm. you go there, you, you know, you know that once it was a really busy place with loads of people who worked there. There's all sorts of stuff going on, and now it's just sort of really quiet with these trees and moss and ferns and everything. And it's beautiful and it's kind of lovely that, that nature's taking it back, but also there's this sort of memory of what was there before, the people that were there before. It's, it gives that sort of sadness, I think. Richard, the character I was reading about, his father did actually die at one of the mills. He, he was in an accident. So he's got that personal sadness. But also it's not just the people that have died, it's that that way of life has changed and, and mm. moved on. And so it's sort of those mills have died if you like in a way because the business that went on there is no, is no more we've, we've moved on which is really as it should be but it's sort of these are these relics of a life that was and is no more when you were talking about uh, about basing songs uh, basing stories on songs mm. can you talk a little bit about how you did that what did you take from the song did you go with the the title or the feel or the mood it's probably a combination i mean they're all northern soul songs mm. and i think a lot of northern soul songs they sound quite lively you know they dance they to dance to mm. but when you actually listen to the words some of them are just so heartbreaking you know the stories that are in them sometimes I took them really really literally so there's there's one song that's called tightrope mm. and I actually have a character is a tightrope walker 
in, in in the novel and so that is you know some I've done that sometimes I've sort of taken something that in the song is symbolic and made it literal I'm, I don't know I think I was just listening to northern soul songs while I was doing the washing up or something yeah. and just like really tuned into the words and thought these are just that really interesting story it's the emotion I think the emotion in those songs really mm. grabbed me and I thought if you can get that emotion and put it into writing that would you know that would really be powerful I was listening to I think it was David Mamet talking about the the idea of giving people a, a, a break from their consciousness from the burden of their consciousness mm. you know you go to the theatre he was talking about for two or three hours and you just the burden of your own consciousness is relieved for a little while. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's true. There's uh, there's a tendency maybe to talk about um, the responsibility of the of the of the writer or any kind of storyteller to to entertain. You know, escapism, yeah. um, which maybe suggests kind of light, fluffy, um, uh, light entertainment. Say, um, but I I really like that idea of of just giving you a break from your from your consciousness for a while and that can come in any number of forms that yeah. can be really deep and dark and yeah and I guess in thinking what your responsibility as a writer is you can think of the reasons people read and you know mm. escapism is one of them um but also people read to learn about things to get into other people you know for empathy to get into other people's heads there's all sorts of reasons people read um I read a book a few years ago called Reading Lalita in Tehran which was um, a, um about this woman who formed a reading group in in Iran when she you know in really difficult times and she I remember one bit that she wrote about one night when there were bombs falling and she was sitting in the doorway of her children's room um, and she was really scared and she didn't know what was going to happen if they were going to live through the night or whatever and she was reading I can't remember what novel she was reading might be The Great Gatsby or something and she could cope with the night and everything that was going on around her by just going into this book. Mm -hmm. And so it was escapism, but escapism because she really actually needed to escape because being where she was was too painful to be at that moment. And so it's, it's really interesting that, you know, we think of escapism as well being light and fluffy and um, a sort of frivolous thing, but it can be something a lot more important than that, I think. That was Chris in conversation with Anna Chilvers and now we're going to hear some work from Mark Pajak. Crystal. Last orders. I put my cloth to a misty wine glass and twist the shine in like a light bulb. At the end of my bar, a girl, maybe 20, her back turned on her pint and a man's hand spilling a powder. A hiss from an envelope like a slow fuse. Her lager's fine chains of fizz suddenly shake until all the liquid is the white tail of a rattlesnake. But it's late. So I hold up the wine glass Fill it with the bar's dirty light. Hang it on the rack where it slides to snap against the bowl of another. That chime, the sound of glass almost breaking. I slowly twist and hang, twist and hang with such crystal concentration I nearly don't notice when she finally stands to leave. 
her spine wags and is steadied by a man's hand. The last wine glass is hung. Upside down, they are a line of bells without tongues. Clear now. When she turns her face on his shoulder, she is younger than 18. They leave behind her pint glass, a last drag, a spray of white, asking to be washed and polished and held up to the light. That's an incredibly spine-tingling poem. The image of the glasses uh, stays with me because it feels a bit like... The poem to me feels like the moment just before a glass shatters. It's that poise. It's that that kind of moment of expectation. I wondered if... Is that the kind of moment that you're interested in trying to capture in a poem? A lot of your work is quite poised like that. I wondered if that's something you think about. What, of the just before? Mm. Um yeah, no, I, I think so. You get those build-up poems. You get things like um, Caroline Duffy's Education for Leisure, where it's all about build-up, the whole process. Um, threat is a lot more powerful than getting hit, I think. So it's the anticipation mm. that, that the, the story or the poem needs to capture. Could you tell us a little bit about the narrative standpoint of that? Tell us about the narrator of Crystal and mm-hmm. um, who, who they are. When the Harvey Weinstein revelations came out, I said to my sister in a very sort of naive, typically naive kind of way that I was like, I can't believe all this has been going on right under everybody's nose and nobody knew about it. My sister gave me this sort of pitying look and just went, oh, I'm, I'm sure they knew about it. And it's something that I've always wanted to write about, um, things like this, things that have happened to, um, you know, friends and, and family and things that have never happened to me. And so I am always a bystander in those situations and can only really genuinely write from a bystander's point of view. But what really annoys me is when bystanders do nothing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to get a preachy poem saying, you should do something. I just wanted to present to someone doing nothing. That's really interesting, the the choice of the bystander's perspective and how um, how illuminating that can be for the reader and making them think about the fact that we do nothing. Did you ever consider writing it from the girl's point of view or was that something that you'd feel uncomfortable doing? I, I think originally I tried to write it and I was just like, it's not, it's not, a, I, I don't feel genuine in this. I don't mm-hmm. feel this is my, I have the right. This mm-hmm. isn't where I've been. This is my experience. But still, I didn't want to shy away from the, the topic. And so I fell into the bystander, which is my natural position. Really. I think it's a really interesting narrative point to have chosen as well because you could you can write from the point of view of victims and we have a lot of really powerful eloquent poetry that comes from that place or equally um you could write from the point of view of the perpetrator of of violence in in some way um and that's also interesting but 
can be problematic for the writer because people often assume that the eye of the poem is the same as the mm. eye of the of, of the um of the, the the narration which isn't always the case um but to choose to 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 have that that distance i think is really interesting too do you think poetry or or storytelling needs a kind of a necessary distance as well yeah i, I think we get our best work after a bit of a uh, a distance with things like particularly you're talking about a place yeah and you can't really talk about the place when you're there you're talking about a feeling or an emotion or, or or a story give it a bit of time and you come back to it a bit colder mm-hmm. and let it speak for itself really there's so many resonant images in that piece in crystal like there's the rattlesnake in the liquid and there's the the light bulb the twist and shine and the glasses that are like light bulbs um and your work in general i think it's fair to say is very imagistic very rich very visually rich um what role do those images have for you in telling a story are they part of the storytelling or are they just moments in their own right do you see them as part of a narrative the best images are in other people's work, I think, do two things below. They, they, you're, you're suggesting one thing. Um, this is like this. And so you've got two points of an image, very obviously. So you've got a rattlesnake and you've got the, the fizzy liquid. But then there's something else suggested that isn't even said or pointed to, which is the idea of being poisoned, which is, I think, what I was trying to do there. And the interesting thing about the poem, I think, as well, is that you're you're working, as you said, it, it came from that conversation and, and the Harvey Weinstein thing. It came from that Me Too dialogue. So it's in some ways it was a distillation of lots of stories that you'd heard um, mm-hmm. and um, that you felt like a, a bystander in in some ways. But I wonder, has it led to other stories being told? Has it led, has it started a dialogue with other people? Because obviously you're, um, you're a performer of your work, you do lots of readings. What's the reception of the piece been like? Um, at readings, it's usually quite... And positive isn't the right word. It, mm. it's, it's, it strikes a chord and some people come up and say that. And that's, that's good in a way. I think there's been a very negative sort of response that I wasn't expecting... It, it was it was published a few months ago, and I've had emails from people talking about how who, who have sort of misread it in a way and said, "Oh, it is really hard to know when to step in," and they've used it as a sort of a, "Oh, you know, we, you know, they they have been bystanders, and you know, they they see it as a championing the bystanders don't get involved," which is something I didn't realize that could be read into it. And why that job? Why why do you want to keep doing that? That, that, that is something I ask myself all the time. Like, why do I keep <laughs> exposing myself to this over and over and over again? What is it for you that keeps you writing? Um, a, a, a number of different things. Like, I think the main thing that started me writing was because I am severely dyslexic and was told at a very early age that I would be illiterate and wouldn't be able to leave home and things like that. I would be cared for for the rest of my life. And I take after my mum in a huge way where I kind of go, no, <laughs> how, how, how dare you say that about me? And so I kind of, I, I've always loved telling stories and 
to be a writer, to, to, to write, to read, uh, even though it's hard and difficult. So every time somebody says, you can't do this, or this is a bad poem, or this, is, this isn't good enough, I, I, that gives me a bit of a kick of energy, and I kind of go, well, I'm going to show you, you know, sort of thing. That's where it comes from. That's the impetus. <laughs> Nothing <Mike> worse. Troop. <laughs> Nothing worse than Mike Troop. Poor Mike. <laughs> Shouldn't talk about him. Like okay, so there was uh, there was something that leapt out at me in uh, the interview that you just did with Mark that I thought was really interesting uh, when he was talking about having severe dyslexia. Yeah, which I didn't know, and I never would guess. Uh, of course, you. Why would you from an award-winning poet? Uh, and how interesting that is mm. for an award-winning poet to blossom from a severely dyslexic child. And I thought that that idea of of writing as like an act of defiance was really interesting to me. Mm. Being negatively judged, you're going to be illiterate. No, I'm not. I'm going to be an award-winning poet. I think I recognise something in that. I'm not dyslexic and I don't mm. have that experience at all, But I, but there's something about for me, maybe there's something about making the world more as I see it. You know, mm -hmm. you can sit down and create an alternative world through your through your your writing and order it and properly describe things and uh, you know make things harmonious structurally. There's something about holding your hand up to the world and saying no, I'm. I'm not okay with this. I need to sit down and work with it until I'm okay with it. You know, there's. A, I think that I definitely have that kind of uh, uh, see writing as some kind of act of defiance. I think against the world as it is. My world without writing in it doesn't make sense. It's not satisfying. There isn't enough order. There isn't enough peace. Maybe. And so I hold my hand. I'm gonna say no. I'm going over there for five hours to sit down and, and make sense of it. Do you think about that? Yeah, we're all basically playing God, aren't we, uh, in, in writing? We're creating our own universes. And Anna talked about that as well a little bit um, earlier. Mm. She was sort of talking about uh, the idea that you can just bring all these elements together and see what happens. Mm. Um, I think that, that act of defiance is really important. And it is interesting. Actually, there's quite a few um, poets and writers who are dyslexic but mm. also I'm particularly interested in there seems to me to be an interesting link which is actually seems to be I reckon I haven't proved this but a higher number than in the general population of poets in particular who mm. have had um a, a speech impediment of some kind or have had speech therapy yeah um, I had speech therapy for a long oh, time really? when I was a, a kid um and struggled to 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 speak clearly yeah. and I think there's something for me about 
in that as well, as well as the defiance thing about language being really hard won in some way. Mm. Maybe you think you've had to fight a little bit to be able to speak or to um, articulate yourself properly, in inverted commas, or whatever properly means. Um, yeah. And so in a way, it's perhaps not surprising that, that um, you have writers talking about experiences of finding language quite a resistant medium because mm. you maybe you need that resistance somehow to to write i don't know what did, what kind of what kind of speech therapy did you have to have? Um, i can't remember much about it because i was really young um but i do remember it. my memories of it of it being quite uh, the speech therapist being quite harsh with me and just mm. saying that I wasn't trying hard enough. So maybe this is a bit like what Mark was saying about being told, yeah. you know, you'll never do this or I am whatever. trying. And it was frustrating because she she kept saying I was lazy, I think. Um, yeah. There were certain letters, I can't remember, certain letters I couldn't say. Um, and in the end, I had to have an operation to, oh, to remove my tonsils and adenoids. And I think that had been a big part of the problem. Oh, wow. And once they'd gone... I was Nailed better. It. I think I could be, you know, you misremember a lot of stuff, don't you, about yeah, when you're yeah. little. But again, you're it's that defiance. <laughs> yeah. I d now you mention it, I had to have a little bit of, of speech therapy as well. Uh -huh. But I think just from my mum, from uh, I had like a little lisp. I couldn't mm -hmm. say THs very well. And they, it came out in the, in the piece that I read today, actually. There was a word, uh, I can't remember what word it was. Mon <laughs> monoliths. Mm. because it ends with a th and an s and i had to kind of you could i could hear it when i listened back i had to mm. take a run at it you know there was one other thing i wanted mm -hmm. to i wanted to bring up that i thought was interesting that came out of your talk with mark yeah which was the uh, he mentioned the idea of um <laughs> his his subconscious feelings about personal experience impacting negatively on his work he was mm -hmm. talking about doing kind of minimum wage work and trying to write about that and mm -hmm. it all just coming out negative because he was so frustrated with his work mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. oh, I have to wait a while and that before I can write about this properly and I think I've experienced that too I've I've, I've seen uh, you know you you write something and you're pretty happy with it and mm -hmm. you put it in a drawer for three months and you come back and you look at it and it reveals something about mm. you that you that isn't good and you think oh good grief that's come out into my work uh, have you experienced that, like seeing something coming out through your work that you didn't want, that you don't like? Loads. Mm. And usually I don't notice it until after I've published it. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the worst. It happens years later. I think sometimes you need a lot more distance than you thought to put together the patterns. Um, mm. My first novel's coming out next year and I've it's been a long time in the making and I'm just doing the last proofs. Mm. Just about getting to the point now that I start seeing the I'm autobiographical elements that uh, <laughs> that I might have denied initially in one of the characters in particular. And God, well, obviously that's, that wasn't me. And you go, no, of course it was. It was me trying to make sense of something. It's never you in a straightforward way, is it? But it's no. it's kind of, it's like the dream self. It's like, mm. it's a version of you, but not quite you. Mm. Terrifying. It, yes, it is. <laughs> it's terrifying. It can be very, I think it can be very strange if when you go back to something from a few years ago mm -hmm. and you see this, yeah, this subconscious thing coming, emerging that you've, you've dealt with yeah, and it's in your past yeah, yeah, or it's yeah. just, it's just no longer very relevant. Yeah. And you go back and, and, and you see it coming through and feel, I feel icky when yeah. I see that. I feel like, oh God, why did, is that there? I don't, that's done with, you know. But it's the shame thing again. I think it yeah. should make you feel a bit icky because it means Maybe you've it taken should. a risk. Yeah. And if you haven't, then what's the point? We might as well all go home. Well, yeah, for sure. I, I, I definitely think that the, uh, I, I, I connect to people who expose themselves. Yeah, definitely. And, and who, who talk about stuff where you think like, 
how are they? Yeah. What does their partner think about that? You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And but equally, it takes many forms. There's there's many ways of exposing yourself beyond mm. the directly confessional, and sometimes, mm. um, you know, sometimes it takes on interesting forms as well. I think. Yeah. yeah true. Yeah. All right. Well, should we wrap this one up then, Helen? Uh, <laughs> how do we end? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I think um, I think we should uh, just. Maybe we, hmm, I don't know how do it. Maybe there is how no end. There is uh, no maybe end. it's just to Never be ends. continued, like a good story. Uh, maybe it's the the thing that Mark was uh, that was talking to Mark about about opening up the possibility of other stories, like yeah. poetry, fan fiction. What's going to come next? So we just we yeah. just slowly back away from the yeah. microphones. Okay, I'm going to back away now. Would you, I, I think uh, I think I'm one out of us, the building. <laughs> just run. I'm halfway down the street. <laughs> I think one of us needs to do like a Cagney and Lacey style, like. To be continued. Thank you for listening, everybody. To be continued. Vanishing point. Avenues of trees. Avenues of hairless silver trees that never touch. Avenues that bring the evening to its knees, stooping to enter their tunnel. Trees that wear new rain like a transparent glove or hold their branches shakily in front of them, like hands spotted with someone else's blood. Avenues of trees that lean still drunk at dawn, dreaming new names for themselves. Parades of trees, armies of pale trees. No. Avenues of trees under avenues of night air, planned Tended avenues curling down the hill to Sablon like loose hair. Like a word on your tongue, alley, veneer, the accent wrong, a language you can almost hear when I breathe against your cheek, breathe in your ear and shut my eyes, go down with you through avenues of painted trees, trees oiled in shadow, framed and held, Imaginary trees that wait as if you could enter them. Avenues of trees. Avenues of poplar, lime. The long-lined year. The avenue I watch you walking down and follow you and can't get near. <laughs>